What is up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Talk Flagler Weekly News Update. Uh, this week, we've got a great show for you guys. We're going to break down your news into the weather forecast, government and business section, uh, culture, and the crime section of the news. And then at the end of the episode, we have a great interview with uh, Palm Coast City Councilman Nick Klufus. My name is Chris Gollin. I'm your host, chief political and cultural reporter for AskFlagler.com. And without further ado, let's get into it. The weather forecast for this coming week has mostly scattered thunderstorms for the majority of the week. Uh, Starting this coming Wednesday through uh, next Monday, there is uh, projected to be rain the majority of those days, scattered thunderstorms throughout the day. Um, Meanwhile, uh, today, Monday the 13th and tomorrow, Tuesday the 14th, are slated to be partly cloudy. Temperature is going to stay in the mid-80s throughout that whole span. Uh, Each day until uh, next Monday is going to be either 86 or 85 degrees as the high, with the low being either 74 or 75 degrees. In the government and business portion of the news, uh, the Flagler Tiger Bay Club featured at their 9-11 program. They had ex-Chief of Border Patrol Patrol, uh, Michael Fisher on hand to speak. That was at the Hammock Beach Resort uh, this past Saturday, September 11th. So it was a very exciting guest for the Flagler Tiger Bay Club. The Flagler County School Board uh, met last week to discuss mask mandates again. Uh, As any of you know who follow the school board, there's a very uh, chaotic, to say the least, meeting in which the school board discussed masks the first time around. Uh, There was a lot of yelling. There was some name calling. The room had to be cleared at one point. It was very, very much uh, not the maybe the most productive meeting out of all meetings. But uh, they did end up voting three to two to quash the mask mandate in Flagler County. That vote came uh, despite a few attempts from Colleen Conklin to place some form of a mask mandate in Flagler County and with the support of fellow board member Cheryl Massaro. At this latest meeting, uh, when they discussed things again, that was held on September the 7th, correct me, I believe September the 7th, um, it was this past, the past Tuesday, that um, they discussed it again at a workshop meeting. Uh, things were a little bit calmer, for one. Uh, not a whole lot of people really came to speak on the issue of masks, so the school board uh, did not really have to uh, deal with um, very, we'll call them impassioned people from both sides of the issue as they did at the previous meeting. Uh, in the discussions, um, the school board heard from uh, Department of Health official for Flagler County, Stephen Bickle, and David Bossardet, risk management and safety specialist for Flagler Schools, in which they talked about uh, potential mitigation measures for the uh, present school year. Uh, the two members who um, of the school board who were most vocal in the conversation were members Jill Woolbright and Janet McDonald, both of whom voted against the mask mandate when it was put to an official vote. Um, board member Woolbright was definitely very skeptical as to the legalities of Flagler imposing a mask mandate for one thing. And we'll get to that a little bit later in the show. But um, so she said it was not something they could consider until it was made officially and permanently legal for um, 
the counties to be able to do that. And um, that was basically her her stance on the issue. And she also uh, made the point that in her mind, it was hard to pin down any one uh, measure as being the the number one, the effective way to prevent the spread of the Delta variant in public schools. Meanwhile, uh, Janet McDonald uh, got into a little bit of a back and forth with um, Stephen Bickle, who was, again, the guy from the health department at the meeting. Uh, the two of them had some some disagreements over the, the stats about um, COVID-19. At one point, Janet McDonald suggested the CDC had stated that masks were only 1% effective. In response to McDonald on that one, Bickle said, quote, you are entitled to your point of view, but in certain things like do the vaccines work, do the tests work, this is so far, you are such an outlier point of view, it's hard to respond. So definitely a little bit of a uh, what you might call a heated exchange between a Flagler school board member and a Department of Health official. At the Palm Coast City Council meeting uh, last week, the council finally voted to set the millage rate for the fiscal year of 2022, which is basically another way of saying the uh, property tax rate. And in what they did, it kind of is both a tax increase and a tax decrease. If you, um, depending on how you think about it, the rate went down. The rate at which they uh, tax they do the property tax decreased from last year, but at the same time. The way that property values have appreciated in Palm Coast over the last year, a lot of residents will definitely find themselves paying a little bit more in taxes, even with the lower rate. And stay tuned later in the show, because we're going to have Councilman Nick Klufus, who was one of the five votes on that decision, talk about how they got to that, uh, what the meeting was like when they did, how they did get to that decision, and what this means for Palm Coast residents moving forward. If you've been following uh, the debacle over the mask mandate bans in the state of Florida, you will know that it has seemingly um, the momentum has shifted about 20 times by now. But um, to sum it up, Governor Ron DeSantis and the state health department have attempted to uh, have it where any school district that does do a mask mandate uh, gets repercussions from the state, such as withholding faculty salary. Uh, withholding funding from the school districts. And um, that has kind of gone through court as to whether or not he's able to do that. Um, It started out, you know, he did it. And then um, Leon County Circuit Court Judge John Cooper uh, went and ruled that he could not do that. So then DeSantis now cannot enforce this. Then next DeSantis filed an appeal against that decision, naturally, which then meant his uh, the policy could stay, at least until the appeal was ruled on. So that's back to DeSantis's favor. And then Judge Cooper decided to lift that uh, temporary stay on DeSantis's policy, taking the momentum back away from DeSantis. And then uh, an appeals court ruled that the stay would go back in place. And so now we are back to DeSantis being able to enforce his ban on mask mandates until the decision is ruled on with finality by an appeals court. DeSantis was uh, very uh, pleased with the uh, this latest 
court decision that put things back in his favor. Of course, as I am reading this, the episode will not be out for another couple of days, so it is entirely possible that this whole situation flips again between now and then, the recording of this episode and the airing of this episode. But as of when I am recording this, the most recent state of the issue is that uh, Governor DeSantis can withhold faculty salaries and funding from school districts who choose to in- implement a mask mandate. Moving on to the culture section of the news, the city of Palm Coast had a waterway cleanup on September 4th in the morning. Uh, Over 250 residents of Palm Coast gathered and split up to go pick up trash from Palm Coast's many, many waterways. As we know, there's a ton of them. Uh, I myself participated. I went to uh, Waterfront Park. I was a little late, so I had found some people had definitely done a great job cleaning it up before I got there. But uh, yeah, so we we ended up having a great, great turnout at that event. Uh, the mayor himself was there to award some prizes. There was a couple categories. The most trash picked up was a 500 plus pound load from local Girl Scout troop 2413. So they won that award from Mayor Alfin in the most unique find of the day judged by uh, Alfin and uh, Randy Stapleford from Commissioner of Florida Inland Navigation District. He, um, the two of them in, in conjunction, shows a gas mask as the most unique find of the day. That was found by young Carolyn Whitney, a member of the Girl Scouts uh, over by uh, Betty Stavlik in Flagler Beach. It was a pretty nuts looking like military World War II style gas mask. Very unique find for sure. And if you go to askflagler.com, you can see a picture of it in that article. But also of note with this uh, waterway cleanup was the mascot Sprinkles the Small Tooth Sawfish. Now the Small Tooth Sawfish in real life is a very, very endangered uh, marine species that we do have in this area of Florida. Um, If you're like me, even a lifelong fisherman, I've never seen one. They are so endangered. But it was a great effort to raise awareness for conservation of the species. And Carolyn, who found that gas mask as her prize, was given a nice little stuffed animal, small tooth sawfish. Very nice. Furthermore, in culture, there is a new episode of our Lauren Tries series up on the website, in which friend of the website, Lauren McPherson, uh, goes and tries local um, restaurants. This latest one, the Golden Lion Cafe in Flagler Beach. If you're like me, you've been to the Golden Lion plenty of times. You know they serve great, great food there. I'm a big fan of their uh, their grilled fish. So yeah, check that episode out on askflagler.com. And uh, speaking of the McPherson clan, Josh McPherson, uh, husband of Lauren from Lauren Tries, has a new feature up on askflagler.com about how to calculate a mortgage payment in Flagler County. So if that's something you've ever been curious about, feel free to go to our website, watch Josh's great uh, explanation video on the topic, and uh, there is a link there to get in touch with Josh uh, if you need to know more. The Senior Games are ongoing right now in Flagler County. That is an event taking place from September 10th to, is it September 19th? Yes, it's September 19th. And that is where um, some members of our Golden Age community are able to take place in some athletic events. Uh, There are the events offered for the Palm Coast and Flagler Beach Senior Games are uh, golf, singles, doubles, and mixed doubles tennis, and singles, doubles, and mixed doubles pickleball. 
So that is a, a great event for those 50 and up to participate and uh, find a way to get active in the community. So as you guys know, Saturday was uh, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And in Palm Coast, uh, we're acutely aware of the meaning of that day and how important it is to remember uh, what went on now two decades ago. The Palm Coast Fire Department held a remembrance ceremony on uh, 9-11, which was this past Saturday, at 6.30 p.m., in which they dedicated the Survivor Tree in Heroes Memorial Park. The, uh, the tree is known as the Survivor Tree because it is um, from the, like the sapling from it. It was from a tree that survived uh, the terrorist attacks at the World Trade Center back in 2001. And so now we have that installed in Heroes Memorial Park in Palm Coast, which is kind of right near the library, the public library. We have that installed as a permanent reminder of uh, the importance and the sacredness of that day. Moving on to the crime portion of the uh, the news roundup, the Flagler Tax Service. If you've ever done business there, you might want to get in touch with the Flagler County Sheriff's Office because the owner is now under investigation for fraud, theft, and embezzlement. Uh, the owner is a man by the name of Bob Newsholm, who uh, made headlines on August 24th uh, when he survived uh, an apparent suicide attempt in which he shot himself in the chest with a 380 caliber pistol and did not tell anyone for 10 hours. But uh, the day uh, after that happened, um, multiple individuals began to report to the sheriff's office that they had been defrauded by the Flagler Tax Service. And a, uh, a search warrant was executed on September 3rd of the business by our own sheriff's office, along with the IRS and Volusia County Sheriff's Office. Again, if you did business with the Flagler Tax Service recently and you suspect you may have been defrauded, uh, do get in touch with the Flagler County Sheriff's Office. If you go to our website and find the article about it, you can see exactly how to get in touch with them about that matter. Also in crime, the Flagler Sheriff's Office closed down a drug house in the B section and seized 916 grams of fentanyl from the house, which in case you did not know, 916 grams of fentanyl is enough to kill 481,000 people. So that was a huge amount that they seized in this house. Two arrests were made at the uh, at the drug house. The owner of the house was Brian Paraglia and a tenant, and a tenant, Michael Connolly, were both arrested. Uh, in Connolly's bedroom, deputies found 41.2 grams of, I'm going to try so hard with this word, sulfamethoxazole. I'm not too great with these drug names, but they found 41.2 grams of it and trimethoprim. Maybe we should have practiced that before the episode. Yeah, trimethoprim as well as hypodermic syringes, spoons with white residue, a glass vial and metal grinder located in a backpack on the floor, and multiple bags with residue. The two individuals um, are going to be, um, they're currently at the Sheriff Perry Hall inmate detention facility. Um, Connolly is being held on a $3,000 bond for possession of drug paraphernalia uh, and equipment, in possession of a uh, legend drug without prescription. 
Meanwhile, uh, Paraglia is held on possession of drug paraphernalia slash equipment on a $500 bond with uh, additional charges of tracking trafficking fentanyl uh, pending lab results from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Finally, in the crime section of the news, the Flagler Sheriff's Office was able to quickly recover a uh, car, a stolen car with the um, owner of the car's five-year-old child in it, which of course takes it from Grand Theft Auto to kidnapping as well. Uh, They responded to a call about a domestic disturbance at the Circle K on Palm Coast Parkway on September 8th. The uh, individual reporting it said she was in a physical altercation with a childhood friend and uh, that the friend had gotten in her car with her five-year-old daughter in the vehicle and had driven away. Luckily, deputies were able to find the car and apprehend the thief, uh, the kidnapper, by the name of Andrew Allen, uh, quickly after the event happened, and the child was returned to her mother. All right, guys, that does it for the weekly news roundup. Stay tuned for my interview with Palm Coast City Councilman, Nick Lufus. Nick, thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This is like we were saying before, the first repeat guest on Talk Flagler. We had you very, very early on in the podcast. It might have been episode number one. Let's do it again. I'm excited. Yeah, but that was with Joey, who um, is our other host occasionally. He actually hosted the last episode with Mike Martin from Mosquito Control. So I hope all you guys out there got to hear that episode. And uh, so, yeah, we got Nick on again, 2021 edition. So let's get started. First of all, Tell us a little bit about your professional background and how you came to want to run for Pomco City Council. Sure, absolutely. Um, first, my background's in technology and my upraising. I, I grew up in upstate New York and it was an interesting growing up. Uh, we had 70 kids in my graduating class, so it was a very small community. It was two hours north of New York City, but my reprieves in wintertime, my dad loved technology and he bought me my first computer back when Commodore 64s were a thing. And Mm -hmm. he always just kept me interested in technology. And later on that synergized with my entrepreneurial skills. And uh, my dad owned a convenience store and my mom uh, did the finances for the convenience store. And she also uh, ran our house. Mm -hmm. And my dad always encouraged me to be active in business. And I started to create products for hobbies of mine. And I had to market them and I would sell my stuff on eBay. And originally you could actually use HTML and CSS inside of eBay listings. Mm -hmm. So I started to learn a markup language, which is HTML. And then my listings were better than everyone else's. Long story short, when I moved to Florida, um, I got much more serious about software engineering. And then I went to school, uh, Daytona State College. Uh, I even enrolled at UCF's electrical engineering uh, program. I, uh, Got a job at a company called ACI, which is a um, subsidiary of First American Financial, mm-hmm. and they're a Fortune 500 company. And we had built real estate appraisal software. And myself, I went on. I am now a Amazon certified solution architect. So basically, I can do the cloud. But I, my role as a senior software engineer was to create microservices and basically. Um, make everything that we had on site way more efficient and cost effective by moving it to the cloud, which is run by Amazon. Okay. And so, and for the people who listen, who might not be as familiar with what councilman does, number one, it's not a full-time job. Correct. Right. And only, I think 
what is it like 11,000 a year? 9,600 for council members. There you go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Even less. Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely not the kind of thing you can run on to make a full-time income. Yeah. Just win one election and have a job for four years. It's not quite like that. But what exactly does a city councilman do in August? Sure. And this uh, follow up on the first question, what got me involved in politics in Palm Coast? Since I lived in the woods, I didn't have a great internet connection. I had DSL when I was 16 and that had just been installed because we lived up a private road, a long dirt road. This is in New York or here? In New York. Okay. So I had terrible internet. And when we were moving to Florida and we came to Palm Coast, my parents found Palm Coast. I started Googling and I read something in the newspaper one of the first weeks that we lived here that Palm Coast has its own fiber, a municipal fiber broadband network. Mm-hmm. So we, as a city, own our own fiber over 50 miles that has two redundant rings uh, run throughout the city to provide our own internet. So we can provide high-speed internet access to anyone who's on net, on, on the fiber today. And we also supply all of the internet to all of our city facilities. Mm-hmm. But in 2000. Uh, six, when I moved down here, all of a sudden I realized the city is not outwardly marketing the Palm Coast Fibernet. And we should be because broadband access is the lifeline to the digital economy and the next generation employees, which are telecommuters. And today that is more prevalent than ever. And in 2006, I bought the domain palmcoastmayor.com because I was committed that there's a fiber utility in Palm Coast. One day I want to be able to be active in my community and to market this as the Palm Coast 2.0 and try to attract tech savvy individuals to Palm Coast away from places like Silicon Valley and Austin that are becoming cost prohibitive to live mm-hmm. because telecommuting is so conducive to living next to the beach and reasonable um, cost of living, which is exactly what Palm Coast has. And it's just so attractive to individuals in my in my field. And I recognized that in 2006. And in 2016, I had the opportunity to run for office. And I was successful as a councilman. And a council, council member, councilman, councilwoman, a councilman's job is to basically set the vision and the priorities of our city and how we spend our budget. And we set the tax rate and we have a $250 million budget and anything over $30,000 has to come before city council for approval. Mm-hmm. So as a team, each council member and the mayor gets one vote, five in total. It is our job to come to a consensus on how to spend our general fund dollars that are collected from ad valorem taxes, but also how and how we envision Palm Coast growing and setting the strategic action plan, which is something that our, our previous mayor, Holland, was a huge proponent of, and I also am, that we need to have a 5, 10, 15 year strategic action plan so that we know how we're spending the dollars today, but also tomorrow and where we're going and what Palm Coast is going to look like 5, 10 years from now. Okay. Um, While we're at it, I do want to ask another little follow-up on FiberNet is for people who maybe aren't as familiar with with our, our fiber network, is that just like the infrastructure to support, like say the city's broadband network? Yes. And we have p- private partnerships with providers in Palm Coast. Like Spectrum, whatnot, Comcast? Not Spectrum, but companies such as uh, Palm Coast Internet and Joytel and other companies that are actually coming to the area that are going to build off of our network mm-hmm. that will finish the last mile build out is what it's called. So fiber may be running down old Kings, but to get to Kings Colony, there has to be a thousand foot uh, horizontal bore of fiber to the building. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's companies that will come in and extend the fiber and they will run an internet service provider business here in Palm Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, but the city saves about $300,000 a year because we operate our internet. And we have fiber that connects to the backbone of the internet. 
uh, we did a fiber swap with a company called Joytel. So our fiber runs from Palm Coast to the railroad tracks all the way up to the Jacksonville Federal Reserve Building. And those strands that we've swapped with Joytel in the basement of the Federal Reserve Building in Jacksonville is an internet exchange point, which is how the internet runs. And if you can get your fiber to the internet exchange point, egress and ingress traffic is free. And that's how the internet works. And the reason it's free is because the more nodes you have, the more resilient the internet is. So it's an incentive to be able to plug directly into the internet. Okay. So um, you mentioned in talking about being a councilman, you talked about uh, setting the budget and uh, the taxes. So um, the council voted at the time this episode airing, it will have been last week. It's, I know as we're recording this, it was yesterday, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, the, uh, you voted with the council last week to set the uh, Palm Coast millage rate for the 2022 fiscal year at 4.6100. And um, you also voted on August 3rd when you set the maximum to set the window of where you can set the rate, you voted to set the max at 4.6989. When you did vote for that maximum, did you always have it in mind that you wanted to aim to set the rate a little bit lower than that? So when we set the maximum millage rate, which was the previous the previous millage rate of 6989, I believe. Since 2019, yeah. Yes, correct. Mm-hmm. Um, I was comfortable keeping that millage rate because at the time we were adding six deputies that the sheriff requested a total of 10. And that millage rate would have been able to fully fund our street maintenance program mm-hmm. and get the six additional deputies that the sheriff had requested. I am all about lowering taxes. I want to cut taxes. I think taxes should be cut and, and frivolous spending should be eliminated. And... I'm in agreement with other council members that if we find light items that we have ideas that we can cut or how to phase in approaches so that we can save money, let's do it. But for example, Councilman Danko, who vows to never raise a dollar in taxes, but he's willing to spend reserve fund dollars, um, he will claim that we need to cut the budget, but he needs to tell us where we're going to cut the budget. So I've looked over our budget. There's no million dollar slush fund. I am in agreement that our capital improvement projects need to move forward. And we were able to squeeze out another six deputies for the Flagler County Sheriff's Office contract, uh, which we pay $4 million at the time. It's now another $1.7 million um, on top of what county taxes are. But with that millage rate, we could have fully funded our general operation costs, our general operating fund, and still added six deputies. Instead, what we've done now is borrowed against our reserve funds. And that's incredibly dangerous. And Councilman Danko will say that we've lowered the millage rate, but the truth is we did lower the millage rate, but we spent money that had been saved by previous councils. And being my fifth year on the council, I was part of those initiatives to be able to put money away for a literal rainy day with Matthew and Irma back-to-back hurricanes that cost millions of dollars in cleanup and maintenance and debris removal. That was huge. And all of the generators and pep tanks and everything um, that took years to recover. And that was a state of emergency top priority. Um, But the reason we need reserve funds is because you have to lay out capital money for these type of events, emergencies. And if we have too many of those in a row or the magnitude of one is huge, then we need those reserve dollars and they should not be spent for things like street maintenance, which should be funded by taxes. We're taking from one pocket to pay another. And it's, it's just a misrepresentation of governance when you say we lowered the tax rate, but we were actually spending money that had been saved by previous councils. 
and it's it's just uh, frustrating that I feel sometimes people are up there to try to make political grandstands instead of trying to be an effective councilman and come to a consensus on how we can have a phased approach for additional items that we want to budget for. The sheriff's office came to us um, not at the last minute, but later in the budget cycle and had asked for these additional deputies. And I believe that you know, the sheriff had feasibility reports that we need additional officers. And I'm in consensus that being able to have multiple deputies at uh, calls is important. And we found room for six deputies. And it's my opinion that we could have phased in the additional four the following year. Uh, sheriff Staley has said he's not going to ask for additional co- additional officers next year. Mm-hmm. So why is a phased approach a terrible decision? It's not. It's responsible. And we wouldn't have to have borrowed from our reserve funds, which are there for emergencies. And it's just very frustrating because he goes on and lectures me about budgeting when it just doesn't seem very fiscally responsive, responsible to be acting in nature that he is. So um, one of the ways that Councilman Danko defended uh, taking from the reserve budget, because he was very up, upfront about it. It's like, I am okay taking from the reserve budget. Um, I forget what the exact quote was, but yeah, he was, he was open about thinking that was a uh, generally a good idea. Um, one of his defenses for that was saying, well, in the event of a hurricane, FEMA will get us back for it. What's your response to that? That it took almost three years to be fully reimbursed for Irma and Matthew. And most of the expenses were covered at a 75% uh, recovery rate. So debris removal and things like that. So for every million we pay out, FEMA reimbursed $750,000. And in the count of like catastrophic events, when state of emergencies are declared, sometimes it's upward of 90%. Um, But his response that he's never seen the federal government be slow in dispersing funds to cities during emergencies is ridiculous. I mean, that just blows my mind that he said he's been covering news stories for 40 years. He's never seen a slow response by the federal government. Like, honestly, uh, Hurricane Katrina is a perfect example of the speediness for which you can expect to be you know, reimbursed by the federal government. Mm -hmm. It's just a slow process, but you will get reimbursed. And that's correct. But if you don't have reserve funds available to carry you over until you're reimbursed, that's a problem. And that's a position he's putting us in. I felt like his example for defending using the reserve funds was completely anecdotal in the sense where I can't really poke holes at it because he speaks in such generalities. And he's Mm -hmm. unwilling to confirm the point that using reserve funds that are dedicated for emergencies should be used for emergencies and not general street maintenance. And anyone who deals in absolutes uh, shouldn't be governing. The fact that you deal with an absolute of never raising taxes under any circumstances means that you're unwilling to accept that you don't know the future, in my opinion. Was that a sneaky little Star Wars quote in there? Yeah, absolutely. A little prequel cool reference, only yep. a Sith deals in absolutes. Exactly right. <laughs> so um, getting back to the uh, the millage rate a little bit. So um, if you I, – I know like uh, last week you did vote eventually for 4.6100. Mm-hmm. If you in that moment were – you were not Councilman Klufus, you were Emperor Klufus. Mm-hmm. And the whole – Klufus. And the whole entire decision was up to you. Would you have preferred to go with that 4.6100 rate or was that more of a compromise and you would have preferred to stick with 4.6989? So ideally, I would have still gone with the 4.61 rate. My adjustments, if I were Emperor Sith Lord Clufus, would have been to (laughs) phase in the police officers, which I'm confident that uh, Sheriff Staley would have been okay with 
um, because they were okay with the six deputies that we had compromised on. And I'm unsure how we got to 10 deputies without having additional presentations. It just seems that the narrative, uh, you know, public safety is number one is absolutely right. But the diminishing return and ability for the police officers to come to um, the point where they're actually on the streets, to me, you do six this year, four the next year, that's reasonable. I think we're going to have a hard time fielding 10 additional deputies this upcoming year. But more importantly, I don't think the seventh deputy that we would be adding this year is worth touching our reserve funds for where we can delay those four deputies until next year. So having a phased approach to me seems reasonable. And in government, there's two buttons that I do not like to hit, and it's the panic and snooze button. And I feel like we have been stuck behind the eight ball because we've been hitting the snooze button on making hard decisions until we had fielded a new mayor. And now we're hitting the panic button by immediately dedicating an, an additional $1.7 million via a, a contract that I'm not certain all of our council members knew the full details of. So just to play devil's advocate a little bit on sure. the, the new deputies, and this maybe this would be theoretically a better question for Chief Stowbridge or Sheriff Staley, but just for the sake of discussion, one of the big um, things that the Flagler County Sheriff's Office has put forth as a win is the fact that crime has been steadily going down uh, since the start of Rick Staley's term and really bef- a little bit before that, too. There's been a trend of crime going down in Flagler County. What... With that in mind, what is it that makes it especially necessary to add deputies at the semi-regular basis that um, that Palm Coast does fund uh, additional deputies? What makes that necessary? So your counterpoint, your devil's advocate position is the exact reason that I think it's a reasonable request to phase in this approach. And I do believe that is why Rick Staley came to us and told us that crime is at an all-time low and here's how we keep it low. He wasn't speaking in a sense of an emergency because he and his his deputies do a tremendous job. I, the Flyway County Sheriff's Office is top notch, and you see them involved in our community and the Palm Coast. Uh, the, I'm sorry, the Flagler County Sheriff's Youth Athletic Leagues, PAL. Uh, they do great stuff, but we're not. Sorry for the comparison, but right now we're not in the position of like a Baltimore or Chicago or somewhere where their crime rates are really high, and it's a situation where hey, I need ten deputies today. Because read the newspapers and look at the headlines. We can't get to all the calls that we're putting out. That's not the case here. Palm Coast is very safe and the crime rate, crime rate is going down, down. It's at its lowest point historically. And the sheriff's doing a great job. And that's why it would have been a reasonable request to have faith in this approach. I don't think we're in a dire need for 10 additional deputies. I think six deputies uh, is more than enough for this year. But more importantly, we sh- since this, we should be more conscientious going forward to make sure the sheriff's negotiations are involved from the start of our budget. Because now what we've done as a council, instead of being reasonable and phasing in this approach or making it a decision uh, to raise the millage rate or not, we're basically turning it into, Hey, this is, this is, you know, a problem because we're adding deputies where it's not, it's, it's just because they were so late to the table, this go around. Um, And it really shouldn't be an argument that, you know, we need to fund these deputies. That's true, but we need to be responsible and phase a phase approach is prudent. And this just to me seems like it's amateur governance and lack of experience that makes these decisions just uh, not conducive for 
a government to be successful long-term because we've had to tap into our reserve funds, which is a direct sign that we failed as a, as a council. We weren't able to put forward a budget that met all of our requests and make, made compromises and identify things to eliminate that did not cause us to go into debt, essentially, by tapping our reserves. Of course, we have 20% you know, operating funds in our reserve, but our, we're spending more than we're bringing in this upcoming year. And that disappoints me. And Councilman Danko, Barbosa, all of them should be, should be aware of this and also disappointed that we couldn't come to a consensus. I was thankful that Councilman Barbosa was much more reasonable in his discussions as far as compromising with millage rate, because I think honestly, if we hadn't been able to compromise, we would still be sitting there. So a question that will lead into another question. When does the process each year start of preparing the annual budget for the next year? As soon as this one's over. Yeah? Yeah, it's All a right. full so, funding cycle, yeah. So, and um, just to kind of touch up a little bit on what the sheriff's office bringing, bringing that forth. So this year, we obviously, as many people know, we dealt with a period where in the city government, we were without uh, a permanent mayor. And then shortly thereafter, we were without a permanent city manager. That's no disrespect to the jobs that Eddie Branchino and Denise Bevan did and are still doing as the interim, but it was definitely uh, an unideal uh, moment in time for our city government. I think everyone would agree. Um, in that process, in this this past year specifically, when in your mind would have been the right time for the sheriff's office to come in the budgeting process to make this request for new deputies? That is a tricky question because earlier this year with COVID, we were unsure of the state revenue that we were going to be receiving. And those numbers shifted semi-drastically, but in a a more positive direction. We were estimating a a much bigger shortfall uh, coming from the state level. Mm -hmm. Ideally, the sheriff's office contract, which the city of Palm Coast maintains for an enhanced level of service um, on top of the the county's obligation, um, should be brought in from the very beginning. It's an important aspect of our community, same as uh, our fire department. I mean, these are people who are there when you have problems and you need them in the most critical junctures in life. And I'm thankful that we have tremendous individuals out there in the field to respond to these calls, but they should be involved from day one. And the sheriff understood that this request came a little, little bit later after the state projections had been uh, more honed in to actually what we were going to be receiving. And he was um, put forward an approach that you know was fair, and we came to a compromise. And six deputies would have been able to meet our budget, and we would have been able to avoid the uh, unnecessary disagreement in how we move forward with our millage rate and tapping reserve funds. And I think that's the most critical component to having a successful local government is how effectively we can communicate. And we need to avoid arguments and avoid making problems for ourselves. And for instance, the sheriff recommended that we supported the half cent sales tax at the county level so that we could fund additional deputies. Mm -hmm. If we had done that, we would not have had to pay an additional $1.7 million out of the general fund. And 80% of it would have been paid by Flagler County residents but 20% would have been people who come from out of town to come into the city of Palm Coast and had bought something. So I thought it was more like 90-10. Am I just misremembering or was it? I think the numbers are closer to 80-20. But oh, even if it's 90-10, could be right. uh, and even if it's 90-10, the fact is 10% of that burden would have been offloaded onto non-Flagler County residents. Sure, just same general. Exactly, idea. yeah. It's, it's still, you would have not had to pay a dollar on a dollar. It would have been 90 cents on the dollar. So an overall savings, which that is a reduction in taxes if someone 
from outside the county is actually paying into it. But I digress. Uh, Councilman Danko vehemently, you know, stood against uh, the half cent sales tax that the sheriff recommended. And then out of the other side of his mouth says that you have to trust the recommendations of our, our sheriff, which I agree with. But let's look at it in totality and understand that there are funding mechanisms in place specifically for public safety. And we should be using those just the way that counties surrounding us are. So retroact, like retrospectively, you think that might have been a good idea would be to pass the half cent? Absolutely. About 1,000%. And I think it's irresponsible of every council member who made that decision to not support the half cent sales tax to look back retrospectively and post-mortem to say, hey, we made a mistake and grow from this to be able to govern better and realize that you don't have to stand on these these ideologies that are so opposed to compromise and forethought that you end up hurting the actual living organism of the city. You're hurting its residents. You're depleting general funds. You're using it, its money inappropriate or not. You're misappropriating funds. You're not using it effectively. These are things that, you know, make a good leader a leader. If you can get people to effectively communicate and come to terms and realize what is the greater good, and I think that's where certain individuals on our council are having a hard time getting to that level. Referring to the promise that Councilman Danko made during his campaign to never raise taxes under any circumstances. Yep. Never raise taxes under any circumstance. I mean, the fact that we could have had an alternate funding source for these deputies and not taken that from our general fund. This is a question for you. Do you consider that a tax increase if we had a half cent sales tax imposed at the county level? that would have only required a vote of confidence that, hey, we would like the county to implement this half-cent sales tax versus taking those $1.5 million that we would have received from that half-cent sales tax and not spending that out of the general fund. So you're taking it out of one pocket and putting it in the other, six in one hand, half dozen in the other. Is that So the, the answer in my eyes is that's net neutral, essentially. And honestly, even if it's 90-10 split on a sales tax, just a little bit less of the cost would be incurred uh, by Flagler County residents. But in that net neutral uh, situation, is that a tax increase? Like we need to be able to have elected officials reasonable enough to realize that if you lower taxes in one area and raise them in the other and they offset one another, that's not a tax increase. So that, that's actually a really good segue into my next question mm-hmm. is um, one thing I haven't really heard too many people, other too many other people uh, frame it in this way is so the millage rate the rate went down. Mm-hmm. It went from 4.6989 to 4.6100. I'm so good at reading reading those numbers rhythmically <laughs> at this point. But um, so the rate did go down. Yes. Now, on the other hand, uh, the millage rate, which is obviously indexed to people's uh, property value. So if property values are going up in general in Palm Coast, so it is theoretically possible for as the rate as the rate decreases for someone to still pay more raw taxes because their property value went up. So that being said, if the rate, the rate went down and if, if the rate goes down and if someone winds up paying a little bit more, is it a tax decrease or is it a tax increase? So it might, that's a tax increase. If even if the millage rate were to stay flat this year, it is a tax increase, but life is a tax increase. There's cost of living goes up, expenses go up. There's a a normal mechanism in place that budgets need to grow because there's inflation and two and a half percent, you know, rate of increase is normal in a, in a budget. But here's 
where we go back to the home values increasing. And you're absolutely right. The millage rate is multiplied by the total taxable value of property in Flagler County. Mm -hmm. But most homeowners are homestead. Um, They homestead their homes. So they are capped with the amount that their home can increase in value each year. Mm -hmm. So if you bought a house for $100,000, the you're capped that it can only go up. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I think it's like, it's in the thousands of dollars. So you can have like a two and a half percent increase maximum, even though your house is worth $200,000 the following year, you're only paying tax on Mm $105,000. So that $95,000 margin is not taxed. So the most, even if we raise taxes 50%, the most that my home could be taxed additionally would be two and a half percent. And that, would basically mean that you're imposing these taxes more on the individuals who are moving to Palm Coast, who are not homestead their homes yet. So the growth that is coming into Palm Coast, that's who you're taxing because the people who live here and this is their primary residence, they are homestead. So they are their tax rate is capped and the majority of uh, there's veterans assistance in Florida. So a lot of veterans don't have to pay uh, real estate tax, which is not often talked about, but it creates just a bit of disparity between perceived tax rates and what people are actually going to get burdened with. I mean, home values are through the roof. So my home is worth, you know, probably 30% more um, than it was just a few years ago. It probably went up 20% this last year. My tax bill is going to go up from the city of Pump Coast about 20 bucks. Mm -hmm. So So, as a bit of a two-bar question, um, the people whose homes are not home homesteaded, I don't know if that's the right word to say it, who are not homesteaded, Um, is that limited to only people who are recently moving into to the, the city? Are there any other groups that fall under that not homesteaded uh, segment of the population? And is it a is it a, a, a totally a thoroughly good thing to have people who are moving in initially taxed at a higher rate until they are homesteaded? Yep. Um, so renters are not any rental homes or income properties are not homestead. Um, eligible. Now we go to the landlord, obviously. Correct. Yeah. Yes. So the tax increase would be on the total taxable value of that property. And the counter argument is, well, they're going to pass that down onto rent. Mm-hmm. But in reality, what happens is no one's going to be priced. They're not going to price themselves out of the market. So the unrealistic expectation that, hey, if a homeowner or a rent, someone who's renting is going to have to pay a ton more in rent this upcoming year because of natural property taxes going up because the property is worth more money. Um, it just, it's not, it's not correct. And if you have a rental that's $1,500, you're not going to price it at $2,000 and all of a sudden have it sit empty. So it, it is pushed back onto the landlords, but 100% of that does not get pushed down onto the renters. And if it, if it does, that's just a, symptom of not having supply and demand in our housing inventory, that there's enough options to where if someone's going to be unreasonable with charging rent that you have somewhere to, you know, comparison shop. Mm-hmm. Is there any sort of economic device in place in the city to, um, to sort of keep it at least the amount that is pushed onto the renters to keep that manageable? Uh, so maybe that, not so much a policy, but maybe or like a nature of the local economy, maybe some facet of it. Yeah, it's a kind of the invisible hand of the market uh, keeps things in check with supply and demand mm-hmm. uh, as far as market rates and things like that. There's no built-in mechanism, uh, but there are emergency safety nets like rental assistance and things like that with the American CARES Act. So uh, in the current times, there's 
rental protection programs in place, but um, in normal in normal times, it's just the way of the world. If a uh, and you know usually it's the landlords who benefit because the land appreciates in value and they end up flipping a house. Uh, we've seen it done before. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so um, painting in some broader strokes now, getting out of like the weeds of it. Um, so there's still one more budget hearing before things start to become set in stone. If I'm not mistaken. One is there one more? Yes. Yeah, okay, there's one more budget hearing. Um, as it stands now, in your mind, what are some of the uh, particular pros and cons of the budget as it stands? Sure. Uh, pros would be that we're going to be, number one, we're going to be adding five FTEs, full-time employees, to Parks and Rec for additional summer programming. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be able to offer, I don't want to call it uh, child care programs, but summer summer camp programs, uh, you know, Working parents need a place for their children to go during the summer. That's something that we hear constantly. And our summer programming has been at capacity. So we're going to be able to add additional programming for additional uh, capacity. Um, I'm very happy about that. Uh, The majority of our capital improvement projects are still moving forward. Uh, We're also adding 10 total deputies in this budget. And, you know, we're going to be moving forward some of the projects that are being completed in Palm Coast right now, uh, like the old King Rosic mansion, that is more FDOT money, but we're going to see a huge uh, build out very rapidly in town center with Mednex and JU and Advent health is opening a new hospital. They just had the groundbreaking the other day. Um, some of this, some of this is impacted by our budget. Um, the cons of our budget, like I said earlier, is we have to touch our reserve funds. That's completely irresponsible governance. And I'm, saddened to say that I'm part of a city council that has to touch a reserve funds um, because we're not able to look two feet ahead of us and realize that this isn't best for everyone. Um, we have a tremendous finance team, the agility that they offer in a time like this to be able to deal with an ever changing tone from the city council is, um, you know, everyone can't do it. Helena Valdez and her team in the finance department are tremendous and they, they got put to the task uh, at yes. that meeting. Oh, some, absolutely. Some real big questions on the fly. Yeah. And on the fly it kills me because we have access to these people all week long. We should be emailing them, setting up meetings. They were, they are more than willing to listen to input from any city councilman. Mm-hmm. And I see it time and time again, councilman Danko specifically is firing questions off to try to have like gotcha questions, you know, Hey, what is the rollback rate going to be? And, It's like, number one, you've had access to that information the entire time. Number two, asking if certain items can be cut um, on the fly is great, number one. But number two, send those in advance so you know the actual numbers that are, you know, you're you're trying to argue for Mm -hmm. and build trust in our city staff, communicate effectively and have them trust their leadership because their leadership is protecting them and trying to move forward and make it less combative. The whole process we need to understand that these are still people. And one great component of our city budget this year is we're able to give the 4% COLA increase that we had frozen for last year. No one got any raises and there was a, a hiring free last year. Mm-hmm. We're implementing a 4% COLA increase and up to a 3% merit raise. So potentially up to a 7% raise for someone who's been frozen for almost two years now. Mm-hmm. That's awesome because we're losing quality employees to the private industry. And that's just the way of the world right now, but we need to be able to keep pay competitive and have our staff know that they're appreciated and really they're what makes the city great. You know who always seems to be on the ball when finance is to present to the council? Carl Cody. Carl's clutch. That's guy who he always like has the answers yeah. as he comes up there. I've been noticing him in meetings just going there. He's he's definitely shout out Carl Cody. And steadfast. He is great. 
yeah, I've had interactions with him on a funny Carl Cody story. Um, when I first got on the council back in 2016, Holland Park phase two renovations were just uh, coming through. And we did a deal for sunshades, those huge canvas tarps that are uh, that cover the playgrounds to keep the equipment yeah. cool. And they're awesome because in the summer, that stuff's unusable in the but open sun. 180 degrees out yes. there. Do you remember growing up with the uh, death slides, the metal slides in the back oh of your leg? Oh my gosh, I yes. can I can still hear the squeak of my skin sliding down this. <laughs> um, but they're expensive because the infrastructure to hold them up, the poles, has to, they have to be category five hurricane preparedness. You know, those things mm-hmm. are solid. So it was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars to do all four parks. And, you know, I was green behind the ears. I immediately bit onto that. Like, there's no way that this is going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I polls exactly polls and canvas, right? Like we should be able to go to Home Depot and do this. No problem. Mm -hmm. Well, in reality, there's all sorts of engineering, safety planning, uh, phase planning. And that's his department. He's the director of stormwater and engineering. Yes. Yes. And I jumped on him and he, answered every single one of my questions and he got the bidder who was awarded the contract on the phone to answer questions for me during a council meeting, not during a council meeting, but the following day or the following, the following Monday. So it may have been like a week later, but the point is we have access to all these individuals and Carl is, you know, a tremendous guy. He's very informative. Um, and he's reasonable. And I jumped on him to try to like, Hey, make a point, you know, like I am on the scene 2016. I, you know, I had the mentality of perhaps I had a little, you know, aggression, like we're going to find places to cut. And then he was willing to educate me. And to me, that's the biggest uh, motivational thing is when someone understands that they can effectively communicate an idea to you so that you understand why and how things are the way they are. Nice. We got so, yeah. to send Carl. Carl Cody this episode. Yeah. He's a tremendous there. runner too. He's very fast. Is he? Yeah. Oh man. I have a feeling if they ever held like a, a government employee and and press and city hall people like a 5k. Yeah. I'd, he's a first round draft. I'd be at the back of the pack. Yeah. Well, Carl's first round. I'll tell you what. Yeah. You're a pretty good runner too, right? Don't you run a lot in the community? Yep. Yeah. Try to much more pickleball nowadays. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. That's a whole can of worms. <laughs> so um, speaking of things that you and Ed Danko disagree on, hmm. um, what, what has been the relationship with you and councilman Danko lately? It seems rarely these days a meeting is going by in which there's not what you call a moment yep. there. So how has your relationship been with Councilman Danko since he was elected uh, last year? And um, overall, do you, is it, do you see it becoming more productive in the near future? And um, what's, what, what do you see is like, how is it now? And what's the future of your relationship with Councilman Danko? Sure. Um, when Councilman Danko was elected, it was a crazy world in the, in the political world. The things were a lot of chaos. Um, but I was hopeful that, you know, we're all going to be able to work effectively and try to communicate our vision so that we can come to an understanding of how we get there mm-hmm. and compromise. Uh, my relationship right from the beginning, you know, semi, he doesn't, so he doesn't really bring too much to the council as far as questioning for individual line items or agenda items. And we're not allowed to have conversation outside of council once he became elected uh, that is regarding city matters. So we're really limited to communications during council meetings and workshops. Um, and most of the time it's just been an instance where he attacks things that, you know, I'm a proponent of, for instance, the pickleball court, we really, um, the whole council really 
we have a fragmenting, I, I could say, when Councilman Danko threatened Denise Bevan's job and the city attorney's job on the dais, and he said he wasn't going to communicate with them until Alan Lowe was elected mayor, and then his first motion was going to be to have them fired. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not how you lead. Leaders have faith that those who they are leading will identify them as leaders because they are protecting and trying to move the objective forward. And the behavior that he exhibits is unacceptable, not only from the term of, from a governance standpoint, but as a human being threatening someone's position who is managing the city, not only, you know, is a terrible thing to do, but it's, it has repercussions all the way down the employee chain. And when you're uneasy at your job, you're not going to be doing your best work. And if you can create a conducive environment to have great individuals, you're going to have a great product. And that's what our city is trying to produce. If you have a, you have a utility person who's coming to your house to, you know, install a pep tank, you'll know the difference between a good employee and a bad employee. And if we keep our employees motivated and bought into the system that, you know, Pomcos is a great place to live, work and play because the vision is going to a place where we all agree is awesome. That is tremendous. But his behavior as of late has only been attacking our city staff and he's combative and doesn't want to actually have constructive um, conversation about how we move the city forward in what direction and what his vision is for his camp, you know, his, uh, his term as a council member and whatever his intentions are going forward, but what exactly he's looking to accomplish. And I ha- I take direct issue with his lack of details and his generalities and the statements that he makes, because you can tell someone to do something, but unless you give them direction, it's very hard for them to move forward. And unless you communicate to them throughout that process, it's hard to gauge if you're actually making any input at all. And what I see happening is that he grandstands at our meetings and wants to try to be combative. And I don't want to engage in that. I want to find uh, what, you know, what he's looking to move forward and try to build on that. He seems to only be worried about canals. Um, and that's, you know, a tremendous part of Palm Coast. And I concur, but there are things outside of canals that Palm Coast needs. Like we, we have an entire budget and there's so many competing efforts that we need to prioritize. And it's tough to be constructive at that point. You know, there's only so much political capital that each individual gets. And every time he tells me he doesn't need to be lectured because I'm explaining future land use map issues or how commercial businesses rely on population counts to generate feasibility reports. I am, I am in a position where anyone who can educate me, I encourage them to do that. I'm willing to listen to anybody, especially those who disagree with me in a reasonable manner that tell me why I'm wrong and how we can be better. And let's do it. That's something that I think makes you not only an adult, but a a human being that can be, have a positive impact in the environment they're in. Because if you're unwilling to admit that anything, but your idea is correct, you're never going to be successful. So speaking of which, and I, I want to ask this question because I don't want to frame it as if Ed Danko is 100% of the problems with decorum with the council. That's not quite a fair assessment Mm -hmm. in general. How has the, um, let me back up a second. Um, One of the primary issues that people were looking for in the mayoral election is somebody who could mediate the council. 
because it's, I mean, it's, it's no secret there. It, it had been a very tumultuous environment at some of the meetings uh, dating back well into Melissa Holland's term, at least as long as I've been paying attention. It was something that it, it, there had been a demand created for strong mediation of the council. And that's something that I'm not, you know, not blaming on any one individual in the council, but that is the fact is something people really wanted. Yes. How has that uh, change now we have a, we've had mayor Alfin for a little over a month yep. since he was sworn in um, has that in general, not just with councilman Danko. I know that's for you the most direct way it applies has applied to you with the meetings, but in general, how has that um, evolved since mayor Alfin took his seat on the, uh, is it die? I never, I've right. never read that uh, word. Yeah. Yeah. Dias, 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 yeah. yeah. How, um, has that gotten better or worse, you think, since he has taken office compared to that? Maybe not fair to evaluate Eddie because he was interim thrown in at the drop of a hat, but maybe compared to um, Mayor Holland and even Mayor Nets before that. Yeah, it's it's a big it's a big undertaking. It's it a big is. question. And speaking anyone compared to Mayor Nets, Mayor Nets was an absolute legend mm-hmm. and tremendous human being and one of the greatest leaders that I've ever surrounded myself with. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Absolutely. Uh, Mayor Holland, tremendous leadership skills. She was able to mediate some of the most chaotic, you know, especially at towards the end um, scenes that I've ever seen in local government. I thought that, you know, we had disagreements in the beginning years of my terms with other council members. uh, But looking back retrospectively, those were handled incredibly well and the severity of them I would kill to go back to those days where just a bit of um, disagreement and constructive argument was considered like chaos. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas today we have people who are just putting their heels into the ground and there's only so much room that you can be constructive with someone if they're unwilling to make any, give any leeway to that person. So yesterday uh, when this was airing our previous meeting, David, uh, Mayor Alfin was able to at least get Councilman Danko on board to leave the motion for the tennis center funding uh, to be defunded behind and, and hope that in the future we will be able to bring that to light. But it's I'm going back to the political capital and Mayor Alfin has a very tough job mediating this specific council because they're willing to expend political capital on initiatives that are going to fail. So if Councilman Danko wanted to show that he's willing to work with all of us. If you are on the losing end of a vote, why are you digging your heels in and continuing to vote against it? Only so that you can grandstand and say, I am not voting for this, or I am standing against this. Come to an agreement with your council and move forward in unison and show the city that we have a group of individuals who are adults and we can compromise and move forward. And not that you're going to sit and cross your arms and not move from your pillars of ideology until, until everyone else comes down to your level. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, like I said, in asking the question, I don't want to frame this as how are you dealing with the problem of Ed Danko? That's yeah. not really a fair way to, to frame it because, you know, everyone has their moments mm-hmm. on the council for sure. And, um, not all of them maybe equally make headlines, but everyone does have moments. Things get heated. It, it does happen. Um, do you think that is trending in a good direction as things stand now? Well, this last week he was live posting to his Facebook page during the meeting uh, <laughs> and using expletives and calling people, you know, all sorts of political affiliations. So I, I would hope that we're moving in a direction that things are more conducive to 
like a less combative environment and just understanding that we're there to do a good job. And that's what people want from us is to do a good job and have five reasonable people making reasonable decisions. And I wish we could just get to that point. Um, but at this point, I don't see it getting any better. And I feel like some of these stunts are more intentional to try to make grandstands against uh, certain projects so that he can just continue to ride these things into oblivion. Um, I was hoping it would get better when um, we had a mayor, whether it was David Alfin who won the mayoral race or Alan Lowe who failed and Edenka was his campaign manager. I thought that was going to be the end of it where all of a sudden, okay, let's be more conducive now to campaign advisor, according to, to Ed. That's gotcha. What, that's how he is. Well, said it was. Gotcha. To be fair, to be fair, uh, to be fair. Totally. Um, yeah. I mean, it's crazy to me to think that during council meetings, Ed Denko had once said, we all know who the next mayor is going to be. And it's Alan Lowe sitting right there in the audience that has, there is no place for that in local government. It shouldn't matter who our mayor is. We're going to make the best decision for all of pump coast. So to me, I thought that was just, you know, out of line, but it is in line with his behavior. The moment I met Ed Denko was in 20, 2018 when I was chairing a, uh, a millage rate hearing. So a similar meeting to the one we just had mm-hmm. where Ed Danko stood up out of the audience and made a scene that he would rather drink antifreeze than to vote for a tax increase and that he was running for city council. So he chose to make an outburst at a city council meeting as his introduction. So if that set the platform and the tone for his behavior, then I'm not surprised. Okay. So I'm um, getting a little bit back more into um, some, some issues and some policies. So once Obviously, it's it's hard to say once we're done with the budget because that's a pretty big you know mothball hanging out there. But once once we are done with the budget, what are some of the uh, the big priorities that you want to tackle next mm-hmm. as a council? So the way that this budget cycle works is next we'll go back to our strategic action planning program, which is great. So the all the directors and our city manager meet with the council members individually. Um, at least. I hope they're participating in the strategic action plan because that is the only time when we actually have input on, you know, how we're designing our budget. So each council member meets with management and we say, these are our priorities and we bring them all together. And then as a council, we list all of our priorities and what each individual council member wants in this upcoming budget or moving forward. And then we allocate what we can and we come to reasonable decisions on uh, what people want to see. So um, I had a few things this year. Um, Councilman Danko didn't add anything to the uh, strategic action plan, but my items uh, revolved around technology initiatives, but also uh, some arts and culture into Palm Coast. I think there's an opportunity for the neighborhood signs that today are just concrete with uh, blue and white. I think adding an artistic touch similar to the turtle trail that we have in Flagler County with the Palm, Car- Palm Coast Arts Foundation. Um, there are these beautiful uh turtles sculptures that are throughout the county and i recommend anyone who's listening to go out and find these turtles there's tons of tour maps and everything but essentially what i'm saying is that we have an opportunity to have a blank canvas to engage artists in our community to be able to add a bit of color and culture to our neighborhoods so the faded out palm coast uh, seminole wood signs and uh, royal palms signs i would love to see those renovated in something that makes us a little bit more art and cultural um society. Mm-hmm. Uh, the expansion of Palm Coast FiberNet through a public-private partnership to generate additional revenue is another one of my initiatives for this upcoming budgetary cycle. And also um, a main component that I'm trying to get the rest of the council on board with is the fact that solar energy 
is the future and stationary battery storage are the generators of tomorrow. So being able to have solar power with huge battery packs and power some of our facilities is a much more uh, approachable and feasible topic. So cost recovery for some of these systems now is less than five to 10 years, whereas solar panels and batteries especially used to be so cost prohibitive where you couldn't do it effectively. So it'd be a 30-year payback on some of this stuff. But we have a water utility that uses a tremendous amount of energy that we could have a solar array and possibly battery storage offsetting some of that usage. So there are investments that we can make in our community that we can identify today and be able to save those tax dollars for residents tomorrow. Do you know when, and I know maybe looking for a concrete timeline isn't so feasible, but do you know when approximately in the process, the uh, search for a new city manager will really kick into gear? Yep. Uh, So first we're going to establish the process, which is an upcoming workshop. Mm -hmm. Uh, The process that I'm looking for is we, we engage our directors and our teams at city hall to be able to procure the list of potential candidates. We open advertise and we allow anyone who wants to be our city manager to go through that process. Even our current uh, interim city manager, Denise Bevins, I encourage her fully to, uh, insert yourself into this process. I think having a standardized process, excuse me, is critical. Um, I don't want to see anyone directly appointed without going through an interview process. And there was talk about that prior by council members, specifically Councilman Barbosa and Danko, um, about finding their own guy and putting him in, putting him or her into a position of city manager. It needs to be fair. And we just need to find someone who's going to work with our staff because we have great individuals and we need to find someone who's going to be transparent. And I think that a great example of how we find great leadership is our Palm Coast Fire Department. And Brad Clark was interviewed by the entire fire department. And every single person in the fire department said to hire Brad. That is a huge accomplishment, and it's a testament to team environment. And honestly, if the city council could work a little bit more like a fire department by having each other's back, we would all be better for it. But in a situation like the fire department, you have to buy into your leadership. And that's what we need at City Hall, too. We need our directors who are great and the best in their field. You know, there are only so many people who know how to run a water utility and who know the water utility for X number of years that we've owned it. We need to keep those people and ensure that they are able to work with whoever is going to be leading them because the city manager role is so broad that you have to have trust in those underneath you. A city manager is never going to know how to operate a water utility and also run a broadband fiber utility mm-hmm. and at the same time you know, manage future land use issues. It's a very broad set of strokes that the manager has to paint, whereas the directors are more fine-combed and you know, specific to the areas of expertise. So we need to make sure we find someone who's going to work well with everyone. All right. So last question yeah. before we get you out of here, because this is a nice, nice beefy interview, which is are my favorites always is um, so you are going to be term limited out of your seat in the uh, 2024. Yes. That's when we have a, a two term limit for our city council, the same as the president, you get two, four year terms uh, at that point. Do you have any political ambitions beyond that? Yes. Right now, my current trajectory, I would like to run for um, county commission in 2024. Okay. And I feel like I can be effective at the county level. My experience dealing with all the same issues that are at the county level in the city of Palm Coast have really, I mean, the experience is 
second to none. You really don't understand how government works until you're operating in it. Coming from the private industry, it's just a much different beast. Uh, my experience with future land use issues and rezoning and having an ear to the ground on what city of Palm Coast expects moving forward, um, I think I can be effective at the Flagler County Commission level, um, ensuring that Palm Coast and Flagler County as a whole is successful. And I think looking over my two terms um, during my campaign, when I'm running for county commission, it's going to be evident that we're moving in the right direction. And I have consensus amongst my constituents that things are improving in Palm Coast on the same path that they were uh, set for by previous administrations. And that's what we're looking for in Palm Coast is stability and continue to keep the upward trajectory of success. And I think I can apply that at the county level. Do you know which seat it would be? I believe it'd be David Sullivan's seat. Okay. I don't plan. I don't, I don't think he has plans to run again, but I would hate to speak. I would hate to speak for him. Sure. Sure. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Very good. That's a, Still a little ways off, but we look forward to seeing that uh, sure to be very exciting race. Nick Lufus, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was a great interview. I will, as soon as we get off, I will call Joey and tell him that my interview was longer and therefore better. Excellent. And I I look forward to coming back for a third time. That'll be awesome. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Nick. Thank you. Thank you.